Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's episode of Daily Horror Habit kickstarts a new weekly series review I'm embarking on with friend of the show Bernie, in which we review the entire Saw franchise from start to finish. And while we surely won't wrap this up in time for the May 14th release of the next chapter in the franchise, Spiral, from the Book of Saw, I'm sure we'll find time to tackle that as well sometime soon. But for today's first chapter in our series review, Bernie and I are looking at the legendary horror director James Wan's debut feature film, which would go on to spawn an entire franchise, but also become one of the highest grossing horror series ever. Currently streaming on HBO Max, 2004 Saw was directed and written by James Wan, and co-written by Lee Winnell, and to say it had a monumental impact on the horror genre would be an understatement. The film not only spawned an entire new controversial subgenre, but it would spawn numerous sequels and solidify itself as an iconic horror franchise. Saw kicks off with two men, Adam, played by Lee Winnell, and Dr. Gordon, played by Carrie Elwes, who wake up chained to opposite ends of a wall of a decrepit bathroom. They quickly realize that they're the latest victims of the sadistic serial killer Jigsaw who likes to play twisted morality games with his victims by putting them in deadly traps that they must solve their way out of if they wish to live. But, as is usually the case, nothing is as it seems, and the true key to Jigsaw's latest victim salvation is a reflective look at themselves. So, without further ado, here's the first chapter in our series review of The Saw Franchise. Bernie, welcome back to the show, man. I appreciate it. I, uh, I think we have a, a very interesting movie to discuss here, man. Yeah, you know, this is one of those series that is so well known in the horror genre that it's amazing to me that I've only seen, I think, two or three of them. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen Saw. I've definitely seen Saw 2. And then I think I saw Jigsaw, mm-hmm. which is the most recent one that's been released, I believe. Mm-hmm. How about you? How many of these have you seen? Uh, I clearly am a lot more psychopathic than you. I have, <laughs> I believe all of these. Um, I My memory is a little bit better for the more uh, well-known ones, obviously, but um, I ran through the gauntlet of this uh, last summer. Do you remember it being a, a fond experience or one that kind of like pushed you to your... Uh your splatter gore torture porn limits. I mean, it was it was very nice for me. It obviously wasn't nice for the characters that were in this, or at least most of them. Um, but no, uh, I I enjoy like the psychological aspect, and like I think a po- a portion of people that really enjoy this obviously like. Like I think you mentioned, it's torture porn kind of an aspect to it. That's kind of like the uh, the name that the subgenre of these types of movies has like garnered from people because of obviously kind of just these films very gleefully are very kind of like torturous of characters and things like that and just kind of like the nasty nature that these movies take on. The more kind of deep into the weeds of the uh, the Saw franchise that we get, even though this is all like based off of what I've heard because I haven't seen all of the entries myself, but it kind of has become synonymous with this subgenre uh, name of being torture porn. Right. And I mean, I personally, especially, I think the first two or three have a really good storyline attached to them, or, or one that is, I don't think it's given enough credit for how good it is. Because I, I think if this was just a, a, a an amalgam of different, like, torture scenes, it would just not there wouldn't necessarily be a flow to it. Whereas, as we'll obviously get into, like ev- everything is not what it seems in this movie, obviously. And um, 
you know, we talked about this briefly uh, when we were chatting before this, but this is my probably favorite ending for any horror movie, or at least it's in the top three for me. Um, so just all those things together, this is like you mentioned, this is one of the more iconic horror movies and uh, definitely uh, in terms of like the franchise is definitely one of the more favorite ones that I have in this genre. Before we really get into Saw, this is one of those films that was very formative for both of us, I think, in a lot of ways, because th for me, at least, this was one of those movies that I heard about before I ended up actually seeing it, right? Because when this came out, you and I were in middle school. Obviously, I don't think that we, uh, we, we were necessarily watching movies like Saw, but it was a movie that its reputation really kind of preceded it in a lot of ways, right? It's this movie that became notorious for being so fucked up and twisted and graphic and gory. And while I had seen horror movies before, going into this movie as a kid, I remember just being almost like anxious about it because it was the first horror movie that I had heard like a lot about. And that I think is something that people that that didn't grow up with the, or the people that have grown up with the internet really can't understand in a lot of ways. Like by the time we were in middle school, like we had the internet, but the internet and the ways in which we utilize it now, obviously were very different back then. So. A lot of the ways that I found about movies were from my grandparents because they would record stuff and then when I'd go visit them, they'd show me or they'd want to show me like classic monster movies and things like that. And other than that, I didn't really find out about horror other than if it was like word of mouth from friends and not a lot of my friends watched horror. And so to be so hyper aware of a, mo a horror movie before I even saw it or before I even saw a trailer on TV was like a very sort of big formative event in my kind of like horror adolescence in a lot of ways. And I'm curious, kind of like, do you remember the first time you heard about Saw or maybe even the first time you saw it? I definitely remember the first time I saw it. Uh, I believe I was a freshman in high school. So like 13, it was probably two or two or three years after this came out. Um, I like we've talked about so many movies. So it's interesting thinking about this, like the gore that we saw and don't get me wrong. There were very gory movies before Saw, right? Um, you know, the one that instantly comes out to me, it's not necessarily gory in the way that you think of it, but we talked about Night of the Living Dead at one point uh, a while back. That scene, I still can see it, like visual, visually see it, where the uh, couple blows up in the car and there's zombies that are eating like the arm and the leg and right off, and they're like nipping the meat off the bone. And like, I remember seeing that when I was a kid and I was like, that's fucking crazy right yeah <laughs> and then you compare and contrast that with like what happened in this movie and night of the living dead really kind of becomes child's play in the sense of the gore that it is associated with it so if you're a, a genuine horror or like psychological thriller junkie this is literally like made for you because it encompasses all of that and i think most people that are into horror even if they want to admit it or not, there's some aspect of like that gore that they appreciate. This obviously complements that in droves. Um, so like, again, there's an iconic scene, I think in this movie as well, um, at the end we, we can talk about, but uh, I saw to me is just, it has so many pieces to the puzzle, uh, pardon the pun there, but um, that are enjoyable uh, between the actors that come into this, throughout the series um and in my opinion most importantly like the acting of tobin bell um it just it, it it's such a phenomenal movie yeah it's a movie that 
I think people forget how structurally sound the first film is in the franchise, I think, because, like, again, there have been so many of these movies. I think there's been uh, eight of them, and the spiral from the Book of Saw is going to be the ninth, and then supposedly there's going to be a Saw 10 in the future. And I think people forget, and I mean, the style that the first two films are, or at least, like, structurally how those films are made and how they're really roped up into this, like, mystery detective uh, aspect to them the rest of the films in the series from my understanding and you can correct me is not are not like that in a lot of ways there still is some of the mystery detective angle but it is much more in the vein of garnering that sort of notorious nature of being referred to as like torture porn and that it moves away in a stylistically in a lot of ways or maybe even just like filmmaker temperament from like james wan's vision for the original moving into the other sequels and so that was what surprised me the most in revisiting this movie and i mean yeah like you the first time i saw it was in high school and then i i mean i probably saw it over the years but i hadn't watched this movie in a long time and so that's what surprised me the most in getting to revisit the original was just how roped up within the sort of detective mystery angle it is and there really isn't a lot of sort of like the the torture scenes that the film and the franchise are so well known for and yet those few instances of that still remain very effective, even if they're not as graphic as I remember them being. It's interesting how this film is so, and the franchise are so notorious for how gruesome and graphic they are. And yet, I mean, at least maybe it's because of the type of horror I've been watching over the course of my life, but like watching this, the unrated version of Saw, it felt far tamer than I remember. And yet I think it's evident that while these are probably the tamest kills in the franchise, like James Wan is still able to make them very effective, even if when you compare them to the other ones or the other traps, they might not necessarily be as uh, brutal or as sort of just gory. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a component to this, uh, and I think it's a, it's a very underrated one. The detective aspect to this is crucial because for most... I'm not going to ruin the other saws, but for the most part, you know, you know, the bad guy is in the second saw, right? You have no idea what's going on in the first saw. It's you're in the dark, just like the detectives are versus in the second saw and so on until, uh, again, I won't spoil it, but, um, you, you have some sort of an understanding of like who the bad guy is and you know, who to root for. You have no earthly idea what's going on in this movie because in the first 20 minutes, you're like, I'm totally on the detective side. And then slowly but surely you start to see like Danny Glover's partner ends up getting killed. He gets fired or uh, I forget, they put him on desk duty and relieved him at some point, right? Um, and then he hires, you know, somebody that's crucial to this movie in a very ominous kind of a way. And so again, you're, you know, and this is the type of horror that I love. You don't know who to root for by, you know, the hour, hour 10 mark. And this movie is always like, what, 90, 95 minutes. I mean, it's not too long. Um, so like, you're just always on your toes. And the more that's unraveled with this movie, the more questions you have, it's not clarifying necessarily anything. You're like, how is like, who the hell kidnapped this family or how did these guys get into this room, this abandoned, you know, whatever you would call that uh, building that has like this basement structure in there, right? Um, there's just, 
there continues to be questions that are needing to be asked without answers associated with them. And so that just, to me, that makes this movie so much more powerful than a lot of its contemporaries that are similar in that torture porn uh, realm or genre. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to put it in that you really spend a great deal of the first film in the shoes of the characters to a certain extent, not knowing what's going on. Because there are all these people that are interacting with one another and yet nobody knows for sure what is going on, right? There's this I, there's this uh, notorious serial killer named Jigsaw out there who kind of has this very twisted morality where they say like, oh, he's never killed anyone. He always finds a way to make his victims kill themselves, which I think a court of law might see that a little differently, but uh, it's one of those things where I think it's interesting that you're able to really introduce this film where it's like, okay, you've got the central antagonist and yet we don't really know who we can trust in terms of the other players in this, whether it's Adam or Dr. Gordon or the cops. Everybody seems to have their own sort of like mysterious backstory or their own motives. Is it, and I mean, it's, it, I think the detective angle maybe kind of feels a little more like trope, trope and cliche heavy in terms of like, oh, it's the grizzled cop that let the case get to him and it's ruined his life, but now this is all he's got kind of thing. But at the same time, I like that there's that sort of unknowingness to the film that really does make it feel like it's a mystery in a lot of ways. I mean, there's also this great element where each mystery, whether it be the cops trying to unravel the mystery or Adam and the doctor that are in the bathroom trying to like pick apart the room, almost like an escape room, right? Kind of like before escape rooms were hot. It's this more like fucked up version where they're trying to pick apart pieces of the environment to find clues. And then it reveals a little bit more about their situation but also a little bit more about one another. And that's an element narratively that I think does a really great job of pacing out those sort of, again, not to, we're gonna end up beating that phrase to death anyways uh, during the course of our series review, but that sort of like torture porny moments, those are broken up really, really well. And that was something that really surprised me because again, my memory of this series is so tied up in sort of the notorious uh, nature of it and sort of just like what it's known for and yet the first film is not really that, right? There's still these moments of violence and gore that still are fairly shocking, but at the same time, it's nothing that we haven't seen before, but they're paced out really well to the degree that they're more effective than they are just kind of like casually shocking. Because I think back in the day, these were definitely shocking. You've never seen anything like it to a certain degree. Um, and so to really see those age well within the structure of the film, I think is very refreshing and a welcome surprise. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, we can't talk about this movie without giving credit to to Tobin Bell. Um, the way that he, he and the director are masking like who he is and he's narrating to an extent this whole thing. It, I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. Um, what was your, you know, getting into like the actual storyline, right? What do you think was was happening when uh, basically we find out that Lawrence and Adam uh, they're obviously in that cell or you know whatever that room is, and then we start to find out that it's not just them in captivity; it's also Lawrence's family, and you know that gentleman Zepp uh, is somehow responsible for this. What was? Do you remember at least not maybe uh, like all the way back, but like when you were rewatching it, what was your initial thought on that? Were you thinking that Zepp is kind of the main antagonist in this or kind of walk me through what you're thinking on that? 
Yeah, I think I just appreciated because I never forgot that like Tobin Bell plays Jigsaw and Jigsaw is the main sort of like archetype and Zep is his basically his uh, mentee, whereas Jigsaw is the mentor. Um, But I just remember being impressed that it was more complex than just two guys in a bathroom. And this is something that I don't think enough people give this film credit for is that this is really like the pinnacle of indie filmmaking in terms of this is such a simple setup. It's a dead guy in a room with two people chained up in a bathroom. They're stuck. They want to escape. And yet, for the million-dollar budget I think that this movie had, they're able to really give it a sense of scope in making the city come alive that Saw is unfolding within. Mm -hmm. We're able to get multiple locations to give us a sense of different uh, variables and different characters, and it's not very isolated. And I don't know how well this film would have held up had it been isolated, right? Mm -hmm. The bathroom... Uh, that they're chained up into, that's kind of like where we begin and it's where we end. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I want to see an hour and 45 minute movie of them in that bathroom. I don't know if the two of those actors, as as competent as they are for this type of movie, I don't know if the narrative is as rich enough without sort of like leaving the bathroom and seeing the other puzzle pieces and clues outside of the bathroom and giving us that scope and that scale. Mm -hmm. I mean... I didn't even realize like how cheap this movie was to make. It was like 1.2 million budget, which would go on to make a box office franchise of like 975 million. And then when you factor in retail, it's a billion dollar franchise. Considering how cheap the movie was to make and how I think it was filmed and cut in like 18 days, the movie has an incredible amount of scope and scale to it, even if in visit, revisiting the first film, you can see the limitations in a lot of ways. Like there's that car chase at one point where it's like super close up, sped up film. And then it's just like smoke everywhere. So you can't see anything other than the car, like little moments like that. But again, I think there's an incredible amount of like just a gross kind of like tetanus atmosphere, almost like the grittiness to the way that the world is shot of Saw that really gives the film this kind of like gross personality. Even when nothing all that gross is happening, which I think is very rare. But at the same time, it makes a film that is as I I mean, we'll get into some of the things that are so iconic about the first film and kind of how it sets up for the franchise. But I think overall, like Saw has a very iconic look that evokes a feeling that almost that does complement kind of like the gruesome moments that almost makes them more gruesome but if they hadn't had that kind of iconic atmosphere to them they wouldn't be nearly as effective no 100 percent. i mean this is not as gory as the follow-up movies are um it's i think to your point it's gory enough where you're satisfied with it but it's not i think it's not overt as overt as the other ones i'd be curious what was what was your favorite death in this favorite death well it's it's interesting for put it that way. My favorite death. What was my favorite way to watch someone die? A horrific <laughs> death. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so many. And I do want to, once I go back from this, just I want to be able to highlight Tobin Bell a little bit more because I kind of glossed over that. But I think the scene that really stands out in the original film the most to me, other than the ending, like we're going to do a whole oh, yeah. a whole section. We'll have to limit ourselves on like cap it at like 20 minutes talking about how phenomenal the ending is. But I think the reverse bear trap scene with Amanda Young played by Shawnee Smith remains the most, probably the mo- one of the most iconic moments from this first film. 
because it does such a great job of capturing what Saw is all about. Mm -hmm. And again, like capturing that sort of like tetanus atmosphere, everything is this gross shade of green. Yeah. Everything, it looks rusty. Like if you cut yourself on it, you would just get an infection right away. Um, and then sort of just this engineered brutality, right? This idea that Jigsaw has reverse engineered a bear trap. So it's a reverse bear trap that's affixated to somebody's mouth. And this idea like, oh, you have to cut a key out of somebody, except the guy's not dead, he's still alive. And then you have to dig into his intestines and all this gross shit. <laughs> it's one of those deaths that it's brutal, and yet you don't even see the trap go off. Mm -hmm. It's like, you get the example of it with the plaster head, but of course, uh, Amanda doesn't die from the trap, right? She's the one victim of Jigsaw who escapes and lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that that scene is important for two reasons, because like I said, it ties into like the brutality of the films and it really does serve as the most kind of like prime example of that and where they really run with the other film, uh, where the other films run with it. But it also serves a narrative purpose in that it shows that it kind of ties into Jigsaw's um, whole like twisted morality, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can win these games yep. because the first two examples that we get before that is the barbed wire maze which still makes my fucking skin crawl, the idea that that guy has to like climb through that barbed wire and just he ends up severing an artery and all this disgusting shit. Yeah. And then you have the safe cracker where the guy is coated in some type of flammable gel. <laughs> and then he has to like go around with the candle and he has to read the combinations on a wall that has unlimited numbers and combinations and things like that. And those first two examples, both of those guys die. Yeah. But Amanda lives. And so it shows that like Jigsaw is not this kind of like, he, well, he is very malicious, but he is this person that is at least true to his word. Because mm -hmm. up until that moment, we're not sure that he's true to his word. We think, oh, he tells people they can earn their freedom, but that seems like bullshit. And so it, the significance of her being able to live is that it shows, oh, people actually can win these games. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be painful, or you're gonna have to do something incredibly gruesome or traumatic, yeah. but he's not a liar. He might be manipulating the truth a little bit, but he's not a liar. He'll still put a bear trap on your head, <laughs> but you could still potentially live. Right. Uh, so I think for me, that's the moment that really stands out. But before we go towards uh, lauding more praise at Tobin Bell, what's one of the uh, kills or traps rather that really stands out to you? So this is also why I'm such a weird individual, what I'm about to say. And I'm sure most of the people that listen to this, including yourself, are going to be like, what the fuck's wrong with you? The scene, well, there's a lot, yeah. But, <laughs> but the scene where uh, Danny Glover's partner dies was so, I, I just didn't see it coming. I honestly thought he was gonna get him. And I was like, how is this gonna tie in? Like, you know, there's still time left. And there's just that moment where he hits the tripwire and there's like a brief second where he looks up and you're like, ah, shit. And then just see his, you don't even see his head. You just see his bloody like stump of a top half of his body drop and that's it. And then um, following that is, I guess there's two iconic scenes of this movie then, or maybe you'll disagree with this, but that scene where Danny Glover's holding his throat because Jigsaw cut it open and he can't scream and he's like, you know, he's uh, reaching out his hand to try and, you know, give this idea that he's trying to save the guy and the scene kind of cuts to black and goes back to the um, back to the bathroom cell. That just to me was like, 
you put the nail in the head of like the reality is is that Adam and Lawrence are gonna die. At least to me, when that happened, I was like, there's no chance they're getting out. It's just more of like, can police figure this out, or is this just gonna be like one of the most ridiculous mass murders that we've that we've dealt with? Um, now we obviously get an answer to that later on, but um, that to me was just it was a signal of two things. It was not just a signal of like lost hope, but it physically broke the detective that was leading the case on this, which Mm. was like a double, double whammy for, for Lawrence and Adam in this case. So I, I thought that was just phenomenal. Um, maybe not necessarily the best death scene, but like to the storyline, I just thought it just fits so darn well into it. Well, again, it shows like nobody is safe in these movies. And that is, I think, the big takeaway from that is, is that they kill one of the two detective, like lead detectives, and then the other one is essentially maimed to a certain degree. And that's important because early on, you're like, oh, well, these people that we've seen get killed are just these like nobodies, basically. Like they're just people that Jigsaw targeted, but they're not really central to the plot. And yet this shows that people that are directly involved in hunting him are fair game. And as we learn in the entire franchise, everybody is fair game. Nobody is safe to a certain extent. And that's something that I think is important because a lot of times with horror movies, at least early on, you know fairly, you're fairly certain who is safe in terms of just like going through the film. And yet this shows that like, hey, these key players can get killed at a moment's notice. And that makes it more suspenseful to a certain degree. This idea that like, oh, any of these people are disposable, even if they're portrayed as being central to the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really interesting. And another element that, I don't know, maybe such uh, young and eager filmmakers like James Wan and Lee Whannell would not, like if they weren't as eager as they were, Mm -hmm. maybe they would have gone a safer route. But I think it's interesting that it shows that like these young eager guys are willing to do what a lot of people probably are not. They're willing to be like, fuck it, man. I don't care how well-known some of these actors are. I'm going to kill them off because I can. Like, that is something that I think they don't get enough credit for. And while I think the series runs with that in a way that might not be as Juan intended, I think Juan set a really interesting precedent with those moments. But, I mean, we have to talk about Tobin Bell now and how instantly iconic he is from the moment you hear his voice on that cassette tape. When Gordon tosses the cassette tape to, um, or I think it's Adam has the cassette player, and then he listens to the tape. As soon as you hear Tobin Bell's voice, my hair stands on edge no matter how many times I watch this movie. He has such a sinister but calm Mm -hmm. voice that no matter what he says is instantly captivating and instantly terrifying in a way where he does not have to raise his voice. And think about how rare that is in horror where this person is able to do this monologue mystery at length and yet they never have to raise their voice. I mean, how fucking chilling is that? How timelessly chilling is that? You know, this might be like way off in the weeds here, but that made me think of, uh, uh, not Tyrion, uh, Tywin Lannister saying, uh, I think it was to the kid dictator. I forget what that asshole. Joffrey. Joffrey, thank you. Um, He said that uh, if you have to say that you're a king, you are no real king or something to that Mm. effect, right? Mm-hmm. I think Tobin Bell perfectly exemplifies uh, an, a crazed serial killer who has a way of talking like a normal person. Because if you hear, again, his tone, it's not like what 
you would envision a psychopath or a, a really crazy person sounding like, he sounds like us. When you hear his actual story right at the end of the uh, movie, when we figure out what is actually going on, you're like, this isn't just out of nowhere to an extent, right? There's There's a catalyst that led to it. But you also see that he's a relatively normal person that has a horrible situation befall him. And then he chooses this very grotesque way of giving people a new life through pain, which is essentially kind of what he goes through in this movie, right? Both on a micro and a macro level. But to your point, like he never raises a fucking voice. It's always the same exact tone, no matter what. And that, I mean, I don't think you can say a better word other than it's chilling. It's just he he has such a way of like saying things that come across eerie in a very relatively normal way that um, I, I it's one of those actors I could never envision someone else having that kind of a role, you know? I would say that he is almost as pitch perfect for that role as, I mean, as um, Anthony Hopkins is for Hannibal Lecter, right? When you see that portrayal, and even though other people have done Hannibal, in that sort of vision of what Hannibal is like. You can't see anybody else doing Anthony other than Anthony Hopkins. Just like the same thing with Tobin Bell. If they try to make a Saw movie with Jigsaw in it and they don't have Tobin Bell be the role, it's just, it won't work because he owns that role now in a way that nobody else could ever do. Because, I mean, all you have to do is listen to somebody else say, I want to play a game. And instantly you're like, that sounds goofy or that's melodramatic, but Tobin Bell says it in a way that you believe his character is sincere in saying that. It's not meant to be a threat. It's meant to be, I want to play a game. Right. And the way that he sells that line, you believe his character, especially when his character's, I mean, he's a killer with brains. And when he says, I never killed anyone, of course, that's nonsense. But at the same time, you believe his character when his character says that. Mm -hmm. Within the context of the film, he is a totally rational, articulate serial killer. <laughs> I mean, he is this guy, he's just like, uh, Han again, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter when Anthony Hopkins is so casual about talking about eating people. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, of course, that's what he does. That's, that's Anthony Hopkins, it's Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. So it's very remarkable and obviously iconic. And of course, not only his performance, but the, th the elements of his sort of, again, he, he's a genius, uh, a genius killer. He very rarely actually puts his hands on other people, right? The only instance in the film, I believe, is when he slits Danny Glover's throat um, with the knife blade that he has. You're talking um, about directly hurts them. Right. Like, he literally them. puts... Okay, yeah. Right. Literally, like, puts hands on them, essentially. Um, and so I thought that was interesting because you see kind of, like, the different tools at his disposal. And especially, like, the doll right the doll that he uses again is instantly iconic this creepy fucking doll that's got these these spirals painted on its cheeks and it rides a unicycle and all these things and it's just such a fantastic representation of james wan's kind of sensibilities as a filmmaker right mm -hmm. he taps into all of these different types of fears with a fairly kind of just like standard killer in a lot of ways right the jigsaw is not really remarkable for what he physically does. It's right. more about his intellect. And then it's also about his like serial killer props in a lot of ways, which would be his traps, 
and the Jigsaw doll, I guess. I don't even know what you would call it really, but his doll essentially, just like it has a very creepy laugh. It's very iconic looking. And then it taps into our primal fear of like dolls are creepy as fuck. But even in the other traps, he's able to tap into primal fears. This idea that like cutting yourself on razor blades, that is like something that is skin crawling. And then the other guy that is in danger of lighting himself on fire has to like tiptoe on broken glass. That's another thing that's kind of like a very primal fear or that is maybe not primal, but it's very kind of like skin crawling. It's this moment that really puts your hair on edge. And yeah. I think that his ability to really sprinkle these widely held fears across the entire film and tie it into a killer that is, at least for 2004, was not what you would expect, right? I think a lot at that time in early 2000s horror, it's kind of a lot of, not to say there weren't good horror movies in that era, but it was a lot along the lines of what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of sort of, especially like with slashers, it's a lot of kind of exactly what you kind of pictured, right? It's a masked killer. It's somebody hacking people to pieces and these things. And to get a killer that really thinks about it and forms these elaborate dioramas and escape rooms that can kill people. I just think it's a breath of creativity for the genre at a time when it probably really needed it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to say that we needed torture porn in general, <laughs> the genre. <laughs> I'll let you die on that hill, but um, I, I, I do understand. I mean, it's definitely different and um, it's, it's just a... I, I personally love this niche of horror. Um, it's very weird to say that, but I, I really do love it. Um, what I can also say, uh, I just looked this up. So Jigsaw Doll is named Billy. Um, there's a story behind that that I won't say yet because it would ruin a portion of what happens in the future. Um, and also you might not, you said that like you'd never want to see someone else technically as Jigsaw you should brace yourself for some of the last movies. Um, that may or may not be the case. Um, spoiler alert. But anyways, so I think, you know, the first 30 minutes moves by relatively quickly. And the last half of the movie, I feel, moves in, in a good way at a very slow pace because you're dealing with three scenarios. You're dealing with um, the kidnapping or the hostage situation with Lawrence's family, his wife and his daughter, and Zepp, right? Then you're also dealing with Lawrence and Adam still in the bathroom. And then you're mm -hmm. also dealing with Danny Glover, who's spying on, was it Zepp's house he was looking at or what? No, it was, it was uh, Dr. Gordon's family's house. Right, because he thought that Dr. Gordon was a suspect. Uh, right. To some extent, yeah. So, the, like, going into, you know, they're basically we're figuring out who is in what kind of a position and we start to hear gunshots. Uh, Danny Glover's character runs in, right? Walk me through, like, I mean, do you, did you like that aspect of it or were, did you think that kind of slowed down the pace a little too much, if that makes sense? You know, I think it's, I think it definitely has, not age the best, some of those elements. Like earlier I was talking about the idea that I really like it being tied up into a detective mystery angle. Mm -hmm. And while I think this film definitely suffers had it not had that angle, mm -hmm. that angle is not portrayed the best in this film. I think it is very kind of trope heavy. It's very cliched. It's kind of a lot of the same beats again, the grizzled detective who lets the case overthrow their life. 
And then it basically becomes their life kind of thing. My partner got killed and all this shit. I lost my wife, my family. Um, I think that, it again, it's remarkable that they were able to get what they did with that budget. At the same time, though, I think that those scenes show the limitations of the budget in a lot of ways. Like having that shootout, having that kind of like car, brief car chase, like those are not the best choreographed scenes out there. And I mean, they do what they need to do for this film, I suppose. And when you watch this movie with the lens of it being an indie film, you understand that. And it's kind of remarkable how well it looks for the budget. But at the same time, like I couldn't stop thinking about the idea that like, okay, this is like getting in the way kind of of the narrative I actually care about. Because while I appreciate the multitude of narratives, at the end of the day, I'm more interested in Dr. Gordon and Adam's narrative in the bathroom. That's the narrative that I want to focus on. And every time we leave the bathroom towards the end of the film, I started to get a little annoyed. I'm like, okay, bring me back to the bathroom because that's the mystery I care about. And I think sometimes they lingered a little bit too much on Danny Glover's character, this idea that he's across the street creeping on them and he's doing all this vigilante cop justice type stuff. And I was like, okay, I get, I get it, right? I've seen this before. Yeah, I, we need to move past this a little bit. But um, yeah, it's interesting. It's this kind of like double-edged sword where it's like the film would be, I think, much worse off had it not included those bits. But at the same time, those bits do drag and it's nothing that we haven't seen before. I think it just, it gives a little more complexity to something that otherwise would have probably felt like very schlocky in a lot of ways. It would have been like, oh, this film was just made for these kind of like gross out moments. And yet I don't feel the film is constructed that way, even with these moments that maybe are not the strongest. It's it's a really weird predicament because how, how often are you like, well, these parts of the movie aren't the best, but this movie is a lot worse without these parts. Yeah, because it's like... I don't know. It's like you have a sandwich and you add arugula to it. It's like, I get that I need to do this, but like, do I actually need to do it for the flavoring or is it more for the health of me? Right. Um, so I guess in a real weird roundabout way, that was the arugula of this, this movie. Is that, I think, you know, I think James Wan looked at these detective bits and Leo and L did. And they were like, listen, man, do you got to add some arugula to this torture porn sandwich we're making here? (laughs) But that brings us to, the last, I think it's like the last 15, 20 minutes now where Lawrence, that's that. When he started cutting his foot off, I got it. <laughs> my jaw was on the fucking floor, just like Adams was. Where he's like, what are you doing, man? Because uh, that, I mean, again, acting, phenomenal acting by Carrie Ellis. Uh, that's how you pronounce his name, right? Carrie Ellis, uh, who pr- plays Lawrence and Lee Wanell, who plays Adam. That was that that last twenty minutes is some of the best acting in horror I've seen in a long time. It's fantastic. Um, just the the different like aspects of emotions that you get to see, both in the tone of their voice, like cracking, and in the gestures and like the facial expressions that they make. It's it's crazy good. Um, but we, you know, he's basically bleeding out now. We understand that he needs to leave, and. I mean, take me through how you how you, that ending kind of came about for you and what your thoughts were. Because again, we can talk about this for hours, but I'd be curious to think like rewatching this, what was going through your head as that happened. So I forgot just how effective the foot coming off scene really is mm-hmm. because I remembered their performances being better than they actually were. I think I think um, Carrie Ellis does a really great job when he is 
screaming or he's like shouting at Jigsaw, like, I'll kill you, you bastard, and all these things. Like, that's a side of him that I had not seen outside of this film. Um, but whenever he has to like have a more somber or a more sort of just like emotional moment, other than sort of just like anger, like his voice cracking and things like that really kind of like stand out to me as like not being the best and kind of undercut his uh, his believability a little bit. And then Leo Nell, I think he's a fantastic director. Don't get me wrong. I do not think that he is a very good actor, uh, unfortunately, except in the foot. And again, bringing it back to the foot coming off scene, that is those two at their best. And I think it is because of uh, James Wan's direction mm -hmm. and the way in which that scene is really captured because it goes, it's, such an uncomfortable, intense scene in that it, the speed at which it jumps between the two perspectives of those characters. Mm. We jump between Dr. Gordon and his determination, and fuck it, that foot is coming off, he's just sawing through his foot, and then cutting back to Adam, losing his fucking mind, mm. uh, understandably so. And it really has this level of tension, and especially it's Adam shouting and crying, basically, and pleading in the background, that really makes that scene all the more disturbing. and. I had read that there was um, a really interesting technique that James Wan used in the bathroom scenes in capturing both of the characters, right? So James Wan does this thing where he uses a steady cam for Dr. Gordon when he captures him, and then he uses a handheld cam when he's capturing Adam. And that was to capture both of the characters' temperament, because throughout the film, it's really interesting in that this film is a pretty great example of showing rather than telling about the characters, right? You kind of you learn a lot about them from how they behave rather than necessarily what they say. It's more about like you see that Dr. Gordon has a very strong temperament about him. He's this guy that is very to the point, hey, we should work together. Let's not lose our heads. Whereas Adam is obviously the much younger and he's kind of like more flippant. And he's like, screw you, I'll do whatever I want type thing. Um, and I think that it's very interesting to capture them in that way. And yet when the foot comes off, you really see them both at their most heightened. Yeah. And usually it's not the case, right? Usually it's one or the other is in a moment of crisis in terms of like they're losing their shit or the other one is more like reserved or it's pleading with the other one to like calm down or uh, see reason. Right. Whereas in that scene, they are both at their wits end. And I think it's a really interesting contrast because even though Dr. Gordon is at his wits end, his solution is I'm gonna hack through my foot. Whereas Adam, all he can do is like plead in the corner to tell him to stop doing this, even though that is his best chance of survival. Of course, he doesn't know what's coming for him in the next few minutes, right. but it's interesting that he spent so much of the film telling Dr. Gordon like, oh, you don't have my best interest at heart. It's every man for himself, kind of that attitude. And yet he's pleading with him to stop doing the one thing that could potentially save himself. It kind of just shows that Adam has really, I don't know, maybe like he was on his way to achieving what Jigsaw wants everybody to do in a lot of ways, right? Jigsaw wants people to be thankful for a second lease on life in a lot of ways. And Adam went from being this very sort of conceited, self-absorbed character to please stop doing, stop hurting yourself. It's not worth it. Even though in the end it is worth it, right? Because mm -hmm. otherwise they're going to die in that room. That bathroom becomes their... Uh, their coffin, but yeah, that's an incredibly disturbing moment that I think is remains one of the strongest moments of the film and it bleeds into that ending perfectly. What you just said is so good because if you think about it, Adam originally was hired by Danny Glover's character to spy on Lauren, on Dr. Gordon, on Lawrence, right? 
So the fact that he essentially was digging up dirt on this guy and he didn't give two shits about his well-being or anything. He's like, I was just trying to get paid. This guy said he, I forget, he was going to get like a thousand dollars or whatever for night, uh, per night for looking at, uh, you know, following Dr. Gordon to now you're actively trying to prevent him from hurting himself. Even again, to your point, it could be to the better, it could better his chances of survival, but he's doing that at the detriment of his own health, trying to in, in, in a way help Dr. Gordon. Right. Um, after that though, like you said, things take a very quick, sharp left turn, uh, <laughs> in a good way for us uh, as viewers, not in the best way for those guys, uh, putting it lightly. Yeah. But yeah, like, Walk me through how how you thought that ended with Zep coming in there and and all that kind of good stuff. Zep coming in and then he's kind of just like reaffirms his idea that oh you didn't follow the rules right, which kind of ties into the methodology of Jigsaw. This idea, this is a game. At the end of the day, uh, I want to play a game is not just this like catchphrase. This is his methodology and it really speaks to his kind of like code as a killer. It's not just oh I want to hack people to pieces or whatever maim people. It's like no. This is a game, and again, reiterating the fact that you can actually survive, even if it comes at great cost, whether it be physically or mentally, you are you, there is a chance that you can survive and you can win the game, as it were. Um, and so, of course, then we get that fantastic beatdown scene where Adam like actually kind of like goes full psycho, and he's like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna do what I have to do," and it beats him to death with the toilet seat, which again is kind of this James Wan uh, sinisterness to it, which I love. Right, James Wan is not somebody that shies away from violence in his films. And it's very refreshing that he does not sort of stick to one specific style of violence. And I think that this film is actually very representative of his sensibilities. And you see it in all his films moving forwards in a lot of ways, right? I mean, there's so many moments throughout the movie where you have that sort of like brutal moment of violence. Then you have this trap, which is just disturbing and gross, but you don't necessarily see anything, right? Especially with the safe cracker and the barbed wire maze. You don't really see anything. It's more about the way that those scenes are captured mm -hmm. rather than them actually like being gr gruesome moments. I think the most gruesome one is probably the bear trap, right? Because you see her like, at least in the unrated version that I watched, you see her really like digging through entrails and all this stuff, which is gruesome and graphic, but it's not necessarily something that you haven't seen before. Right. And so I think it's interesting too, though, that you get these moments that are not gruesome or graphic, and yet they are very creepy, even if nothing actually happens in those scenes. Like when we go back to Dr. Gordon's uh, apartment and we see his daughter wakes up and she's just staring into the dark corner of her room and the camera lingers there. Mm -hmm. And she says, oh, there's somebody in my room. But in that scene, you can't actually see anybody. Right. And yet the corner of the room is so dark that there could be somebody there. Mm -hmm. Even though we learn, of course, that Zepp is hiding in the closet because there's actually a moment that I don't know if you've uh, if you're familiar with the film Black Christmas, but there's a nod to Black Christmas, which is a, a slasher from the 70s. Mm -hmm. When the camera zooms in on his eye in Black Christmas, the killer Billy in that there's a scene just like that, where it's just like his eye is like looking around all inquisitive and he's like, getting ready to kill somebody. But um, it that scene I think is very interesting because it shows James Wan's sensibility of playing with space. Because mm -hmm. James Wan is no stranger to like highlighting the shadows in one scene. There's nothing there. Leave, come back to that. And then we revisit that. And this time there is something there and something jumps out of the shadows at you or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
I think this film is very indicative of his style moving forwards, and it's not a surprise that this is his debut. And then we see these moments evolved on in his other films. Mm -hmm. But in terms of just like the ending of Saw, this still remains such an iconic end scene that hits like very few scenes do, and it ages beautifully yes. because it's such an oh fuck moment because the camera lingers on Adam because Dr. Gordon has left the room here. He's crawled out of the room as he's bleeding out. And the camera zooms in on Adam while he's listening to that cassette that was Zed's cassette or Zepp's cassette. And then you just see this body rise in the background and the camera doesn't zoom in on it and it's not in focus. And that is what is so unsettling no matter how many times you've seen it, no matter how often you are expecting it. Mm -hmm. Because you just see this blurry figure and it's so matter of fact that it's almost like James Wan is saying, well, of course he's gonna stand up. He's been alive the whole time. You didn't know that? And I think that that is such a remarkable moment because it's just as shocking. It's just as disturbing, this idea that this person was lying here the entire time and you didn't know it. And that is the most, oh shit moment. The solution was right under your nose. Yep. And that is a consistent theme, at least in the Saw movies that I've seen. And especially with how the film opens. The film opens with Adam sealing his own fate. When he rips that uh, stopper out of the bathtub, the key goes down the drain. He's dead within the first 15 seconds of the movie and we didn't know it and he didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And that is such a fantastic gut punch. James Wan saying, fuck you, you're dead from the start moment and you have been fighting against the inevitable. And that's an element of this film that I fucking love and has aged beautifully. But I'm curious, like, how does this ending really hold up for you? Because as we've both said, like, this is such an iconic ending in a film that is, uh, I mean, it, I don't think this franchise gets enough credit for how remarkable the first chapter in the film uh, series was. I mean, man, you couldn't have said it more beautifully. Like, that scene where Tobin Bell, uh, or Jigsaw, rather, stands up slowly, and then he's, like, ripping off this, like, what would you even call it? It was like cosmetic skin that he had put on there with like the fake blood and stuff like that. I mean, in the opening moment, in the opening two minutes of the movie, you clearly see them like looking at this dead guy's, in theory, dead guy's body. And like you said, you just, okay, he shot himself in here. It's giving this like more, this, this room that's already very dark and dank and, um, you know, completely secluded. It's giving it that much more of a, a horror aspect. Where again, in reality, there's been three of you in that room that whole fucking time. You had no idea of it. Um, and I, I think the other thing that just kind of hit me is that Lee, if Adam's character cut his foot off, he would. They would have both, in theory, they could have both survived. But uh, Adam gave Lawrence the saw. So he sawed his own foot off. Now that saw is nowhere near Adam. And now Adam's in a position, especially, God bless Jigsaw. That's a really weird way of saying it. <laughs> uh, he, the only person to ever say that. <laughs> probably. <laughs> well, we'll get on to the second and third movie. Maybe not the only person, but definitely a, a very, very small select handful. Um, but, uh, but the fact that he like hits him with the electricity shock and, and Adam drops the pistol to where it's far enough where he can't reach it. It just, it creates again, this just, this sickening feeling, like you said, of like, 
he had no chance from the get-go of this movie. There was He was dead man walking. And again, to your point earlier, he probably more so than Dr. Gordon made a change in that in that bathroom. I think mm. he probably yeah. changed more so in, you know, whatever appreciated his life would be. That's a really good point. And then he ends up dying, right? Uh, and again, that scene where the last words, game over, and he closed the door <laughs> while Adam is screaming, and he continues, it's not just that it stops, the screen goes blank, and you can still hear him yes. screaming for another five seconds. That was just, I mean, man, that was such a good fucking ending. Like, I can't say enough how much I appreciate that because we've both sat and talked about movies where the movie is great and then the ending is so lackluster or it just takes a weird turn. And this movie, like, I I think that the ending does it justice, but I also think to a sense that this, like, I, I, I don't necessarily know the best way of articulating it, but I, I just, I freaking love that ending so much, man. So two things. I really like the way that you said that in that Adam is the one that really does show the most change from the beginning of the film. And yet he shoots himself in the foot even at like twice he does, right? I mean, he not only flushes the key down the drain, but also he allows his temperament to get the best of him in that when he realizes he can't saw through the chains, he breaks his hacksaw. That's why he throws it away. And Dr. Gordon does not because he has a better temperament. He doesn't allow himself to lash out or to kind of just freak out early on. And his hacksaw then, he's able to use to cut through his foot, right? And I think that that's interesting, but also this idea that I don't think this film has a perfect ending necessarily, but I think it has the perfect ending for this film. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, like another double-edged sword in this idea that this film could not end any other way. This film has to end the way it does because it instills in us that there are no happy endings. And that is so signature to Saw and to what Saw is. And yet from my understanding, the idea that the rest of the films take that to be sort of like the ideology of Saw, it incorporates a nastiness that I'm pretty sure uh, James Wan has been on record saying was not his intention. Because if you go back and think about a majority of the film, it's not, it's a gross and a gruesome film, but everything feels purposeful. Every instance of violence serves a purpose. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, again, I haven't seen all the entries in the film, all of those other films structurally, the violence is there because it treats it as the main attraction. And that was never really the intention of the original Saw. The violence was a byproduct of this is a detective mystery and this is the killer and this is what he does and it's shocking and it's different and this is why it's noteworthy. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's it's very interesting that this is the perfect ending for Saw and yet it is not a necessarily a perfect ending. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so to your point, this is a perfect ending because we 100% now know who the bad guy is the main culprit right and who is somewhat responsible for certain issues because again Mm. halfway through we think zepp is a bad guy and we learn at the end no he was literally this in the same exact boat as adam and and dr gordon he was just slowly dying from a poison that's why he um why he had kidnapped or held hostage the family right um 
we see later on, by the way, in the second and third movie, maybe that wasn't actually Zep in the, in that kid's room. Was it? A, did we see that it was Zep in there, or were we? Uh, I I just assume it is because he ends up in the apartment at one point. I I would well I would encourage you, and hopefully we can watch some more of these movies and talk about them. But you will see there is a character that. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but yeah, there, right. not everything is as it seems, I guess, is the best way that I can put it uh, to make it a little ominous. Um, this is what I love about the original film in that what is so central to it is that nothing is as it seems. And from what little I remember of the second film, the two complement one another in a way that real that it's not just a continuation in terms of like, oh, here's more people getting killed in horrific ways, even though that's clearly the case to a certain degree. I like that it builds on the methodology, it builds on the universe, it builds on the characters in a way that, I don't know, man, we don't get a lot of series of horror films that do that as well as these films do, right? Usually it's like, oh, you thought the killer was dead? Psych, he's not dead. That kind of thing that's very generic. And to see a world that is as intricate as this, early on at least, I think is very rare and it's something that I'm really interested to revisit because it's something I haven't revisited in a very long time. So. I'm really excited for that. It's uh, it's it's definitely going to be it. We we have, unfortunately, uh, you know, probably six more movies to mention torture porn sixteen times. But uh, <laughs> but that coupled with the fact that you know, I think you mentioned this earlier, Spiral is coming out here in the next week or two. Saw a production team was able to get Samuel L. Jackson and Chris Rock. Uh, I mean. They, I, I think this, it's going to be interesting to see how they take the movie from where Jigsaw was. Um, but I, I think that type of a cast, uh, as long as it doesn't end up like True Detective season two, I think this is going to be. <laughs> yeah, you know, I got a lot of uh, Saw movies to catch on before that, but it is, I don't know, it's reassuring that we can start a franchise so strong and know that it builds in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily see a peak for a while, but then at the end of the tunnel, as it were, uh, it seems that there is another entry, a more recent entry, that seems to be more in line with the original film, at least from what we've seen. Again, that's all based on trailers and what we've read, and it's all speculative on my part, but it's very refreshing to see where a series begins, to see the trials and tribulations, and maybe they try a lot of things that don't necessarily work, and maybe they get experimental, but then to at least have somewhat of a reassurance that it seems like it's going to be returning to its roots, that makes me even more excited to view maybe the entries that are not as uh, remarkable or, or miss the mark as it were. I think that that's, it's interesting to see like what a series has to go through to get back to where it should be. And if anything, in obviously revisiting all of these other movies and seeing some of these for the first time, I just think it's going to make me even more excited and more appreciative of Spiral. Spiral is really able to live up to the sort of pedigree of the original film, and it seems like it's heading in that direction. So I'm really excited to uh, to take this twisted uh, torture porn journey with you. <laughs> Odd way of phrasing it, but we can just run past that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, you know, I'm I'm definitely excited. I think we uh, we should definitely chat about Saw uh, Two here in the near future. But uh, yeah, I mean. In all, for all intents and purposes, I mean, would you put Saw, at least the opening movie, in like your top five horror movies all time, do you think? Um, 
I don't think it's in my top five or even my top 10, to be honest. Okay. Um, it's, I think in terms of this style of movie, mm. I really, really appreciate what it is. And I like that. And I guess I think in terms of like iconic horror, I would almost think of this as like a top 100 movie. And I know a top 100 sounds like, oh, that's not that flattering. But in terms of all horror, mm. this movie holds a special place, I think, in horror history in a lot of ways, because I think this movie does a lot better than what some of its competitors tried to do in a lot of ways, like something like Hostel, which again, when you're talking again about torture porn type movies, those two movies, there's a lot of dots that you can connect between them. I think Saw is a much better made film than something like Hostel, yeah. where Hostel I think truly earns that sort of like torture porn pedigree, whereas something like Saw is much more structurally sound and it has those gross moments, but they're they're not gross just for the moments themselves. It's almost has more to do with the buildup, how sparingly they're used, the atmosphere that's crafted. It's more about the way in which they are employed rather than the actual moments themselves. Whereas something like Hostel, for me, that movie is all those gory moments. Yeah. Everything in between those moments, I think, is garbage to a certain degree. Uh, it doesn't hold up well for me in a lot of ways. Uh, narratively, uh, specifically, um, it doesn't. Um, but then again, like with Hostel, I'll always think about that Achilles tendon snap. And that's one of those wow. movies that like when we were in when we were in high school, that was one of the scenes that everybody talked about, even people that weren't into horror movies. And we were t like, we were trying to figure out which of our friends were able to sneak in so we could ask them, oh, how was that movie? Like shit like that. Um, so that again is like a formative movie in some ways, but I think Saw is a much more refined and a much better movie than those types of films. And so I think that that's a movie that um, definitely holds a special place in horror history. But for you, how does it rank for you? Because you're the uh, the Saw super fan. Uh, I mean, I, I <laughs> super fan sounds a little too grotesque in this particular case, but de I definitely, uh, this is, a, I, think a, I think it's a little bit higher on my ranking than it is on yours. Um, but also to your credit, I think you have a little bit more of a, a plethora of horror movies under your belt than I do. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe that wasn't the best the best question the better question would have been do you think the ending is a top five or top ten ending rather than a movie itself is that is that a fair i think the ending to saw is probably a top 10 in terms of shocking mm -hmm. because it's one of those endings that you did not see coming mm -hmm. for the entire film yeah obviously you could not know that that was jigsaw because you didn't see his face because he was face down mm -hmm. And yet it's so shocking and sudden. And again, how they play with the foreground in that way that that film, that uh, scene is shot, I think is, again, it, it's a phenomenal way of making the most out of very little. This is a very simple film. There isn't a lot that is shocking other than like, oh, this is gruesome moment that pops out of nowhere kind of thing. And the way that they're able to take the most simple act of a guy standing up and have that be even more shocking, I think, than a lot of the traps and the kills in this film is just a really remarkable example. And it shows like how ahead of his time James Wan was and this idea that like he was not a film. He was a filmmaker that far, his talent far outweighed that meager million dollar budget for this film mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I think that it holds up as one of my uh, most fondly remembered endings in just how fucking devastating of an ending it is. I think that's a perfect way of putting it, actually, yeah. I think it's it's the most devastating ending 
of a <laughs> horror movie that I, I've seen, or at least one of the top three. I'll when we get when we do the second Saw movie, I'll think of another couple ones uh, potentially, like <laughs> ending wise specifically, because I imagine your thought on the way that this ends versus the way that the second movie ends are going to be a little bit different, albeit still good endings, but uh, in a very different way. Um, but yeah, man, I'm I'm so appreciative that you had me on again for us to chat about this. I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to chatting more about uh, I said about torture porn with you, but <laughs> <laughs> about these uh, about this soft franchise with you, brother. As always, man, it was a blast having you on, and yeah, I can't wait to uh, revisit this franchise with you because it's one that. I haven't revisited uh, in a very long time and I haven't even seen all the entries before. So it's going to be an interesting to take this kind of uh, this torture porn journey with you and we can try to get a uh, we've now filled our torture porn quotas so and now we're barred from saying that <laughs> phrase ever again. But I'm looking forward to having you on uh, again in the future, man. And this is going to be a, an interesting journey, to say the least. Very much so, brother. I appreciate it, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.